this is a pretty simple outcome that's worth investigating. Many of them have lab abnormalities. Adding in coagulopathy always adds a little bit of trepidation. The location of these patients is somewhat shocking to me. I was surprised as well. If somebody needs an emergent catheter, I'm not going to wait. We have to make a decision. Welcome, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. So glad you're joining us on this podcast. I'm Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And joining me, as always, are my stellar CCPEM co-host, Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and joining us at some point during this podcast will be Dr. Peter W., the voices you know all too well here on CCPEM. So let me turn things over to John. How are you doing this podcast? Doing great, Mike. Yes, summer's coming along well. And, you know, I was just watching the news this evening just before we started the podcast. And I saw scrolling across the screen that, unfortunately, it sounds like LeBron James's son had a cardiac arrest while at basketball practice yesterday. And it sounds like he had very prompt attention. Medical care was taken to the local hospital and now is out of the ICU, thank goodness. But this is now not something that is actually uncommon. You know, we hear about athletes having cardiac arrest periodically, but whenever it makes a headline, it always makes you think maybe more locally and saying, hey, maybe I need to make sure that whether or not it's a school or a local town team facility, we have our AEDs up and everything. So this is more or less a reminder to all of you, if you are involved in youth sports or anything, to double check to make sure your AEDs are present at all of your fields and ready to be used just in case, because you never know. I think that's an outstanding point. So glad to hear that he's out of the ICU. And I couldn't agree with you more there on bystander CPR training, AED training. You made me think as you're telling the story there, my son is wrapping up his Boy Scout career and just coming down the home stretch with ending that. And I'm a first aid counselor along with emergency preparedness. And just a few weeks ago, I taught AED and bystander CPR. So I couldn't agree more with that. Over to Dr. Rodriguez. Rob, how are you doing this recording? Doing great, Mike. I definitely appreciate that message about AEDs as I saw that on CNN screen. Yeah, I just started thinking about like, where's the nearest AED to my home? And it's something to think about. And I even was contemplating maybe perhaps buying an AED. They're not all that expensive, actually. And any event, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. But things are great here in California. We're not as hot as the rest of the country, at least where I am. And it's been a very nice summer so far. Outstanding. Well, speaking of hot, and what we like to do here on CCPEM is talk about hot off the press articles, literature, groundbreaking studies, or at least what we feel are going to be the key articles from each calendar year. And well, we're going to touch on one of those during this podcast. And with resuscitation, when we've got sick patients, regardless of where they're located, often those critically ill patients require procedures. 
And many of them have lab abnormalities. Many of them have coagulopathies or they're on therapeutic anticoagulation and they need procedures. And in many cases, we talk about whether to give prophylactic blood transfusions to prevent complications for a number of critical care procedures. And with that introduction, I'm going to turn things over to John to take us through this recording, this discussion based on a recent article pertaining to prophylactic blood product transfusion for a procedure. John, what am I talking about? Yeah, absolutely, Mike. So this was a great article and I'm interested to hear what you guys think as well as whether or not you even have any existing local practices, because I think this is a topic that comes up maybe a little bit more frequently than we might think just on the surface. And so this was a trial that was published out of the Netherlands at the Amsterdam Medical Center by doctors Vanderbarl and colleagues. And the article was just published in New England Journal of Medicine. It was titled Platelet Transfusion Before Central Venous Catheter Placement in Patients with Thrombocytopenia. And I think we've all been there, right? Like we've been in front of this patient or in the patient's room, a critically ill patient with severe thrombocytopenia. And we have to make a decision whether or not we're going to place an invasive catheter, a central venous catheter, to provide you know maybe some of the supportive therapies that they might need. And certainly this is a common procedure that we perform on lots of patients, and they might need vasopressors, hemodynamic monitoring, and occasionally they need a temporary dialysis catheter for renal replacement therapy. But adding in coagulopathy always adds a little bit of trepidation, I think, for the clinician who needs to perform the procedure. Now, thrombocytopenia is pretty common. We see it in cancer patients, in patients with end-stage liver disease. We even have patients who are coagulopathic because of medications, so antiplatelets, whether or not it's a DOAC, aspirin, Plavix, you name it. But this article is really focused on patients with a primary thrombocytopenia, and we'll talk about the inclusion-exclusion criteria in a little bit. But current guideline recommendations are actually kind of spread out in terms of the range at which they might recommend therapeutic transfusion for a lower platelet threshold. And that range tends to be in the literature between 20 and 50,000 platelets per ml. And I think we often will say, well, we can get above that 50K limit if we transfuse a unit of apheresis platelets. Now, I think most institutions have moved on from that six-pack pooled platelets, apheresis platelets, at least in the United States. And that might get us above that generally accepted 50K threshold. Now, all of us use ultrasound, and I think that's decreased the rate of complications in many of the procedures that we might need to perform. But certainly the risk of giving platelet transfusions is not minimal. I can personally think of a number of patients, I've had three or four patients that have had pretty significant reactions to platelets, whether or not it was hypotension, actually had one instance of infection related to a platelet transfusion in a patient in the ICU, certainly other things like acute lung injury. And that's often due because platelets tend to have a lot of antigens on their surface. So they're pretty immune reactive. So before we get into the details of the study, I'm just curious, maybe starting with you, Mike, are there any institutional guidelines that you have in Maryland or that you generally practice by of a threshold in which you might transfuse before placing a central line? Well, in general, we don't have any specific hospital policies that I'm aware of with respect to thresholds for platelet count based upon the procedure. 
We do have other policies for hematologic management, reversal of, say, anticoagulation. Those are relatively standard, but it's variable with respect to platelet transfusions. In general, because of our utilization of ultrasound with the placement of central venous catheters and the perception and really the evidence that shows that the complications are lower, I tend not to do it. I do think that we all think of that 50,000 level of platelet threshold and become a little apprehensive. Where I will transfuse patients' platelets is usually when they're below 10,000 with respect to, to spontaneous hemorrhage. And I think we would all agree that that primarily comes from, say, hematologic literature when platelet counts get that low. But when we're talking about central venous catheters and in that sort of 10 to 50,000 range, I think it's all individual practice variation, quite honest. Yeah, that's interesting. How about you, Rob? Any particular threshold that you have? Yeah, I'm not aware of an exact guideline or exact standard practice at my hospital, but I personally fall into the camp that if they're below 50, I do transfuse before this article. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so I can tell you at University of Pennsylvania, we do not have a specific threshold guideline which sets us up perfectly, I think, to discuss this paper. Now, I want to make note before we go into this that we're not talking about lumbar punctures. We're not talking about any other invasive procedure than what the design of this trial was, was to look specifically at central venous catheter placement. So Rob, why don't you walk us through the objective and the methods of this paper? Thanks, John. The objective of this study was to evaluate whether the omission, in other words, the foregoing of platelet transfusion before central line placement in patients with a platelet count of 10,000 to 50,000 would increase the risk of catheter-related bleeding. So in terms of methods, this was an unblinded, randomized, controlled, non-inferiority trial. The location was in the hematology ward and ICUs of 10 hospitals in the Netherlands, a mix of academic and community hospitals. The inclusion criteria for the patients were they had to be adults, 18 or older. They had to have a platelet count between 10 and 50 within 24 hours of the procedure. And central lines, they were intended to have a central line that would be in place for greater than 24 hours. They excluded patients who were receiving a medical anticoagulant like Coumadin or one of the DOACs. They also excluded people with a history of a congenital or acquired factor deficiency or a known bleeding risk. They also initially excluded patients with an INR of greater than 1.5, but they later increased that threshold to an INR greater than 3 after two-thirds of the trial events. This was because in an interim analysis, the trial team found evidence of safety even at higher INR levels. In terms of enrollment, they had two types of informed consent. For stable patients, they did traditional written informed consent. For critically ill patients who they could not get informed consent beforehand, they deferred consent and when the central lines were placed emergently. Then after stabilization of that patient, they approach the patient or the authorized representative for informed consent. If the patient died, however, prior to consent, they were included in the analysis. In terms of procedures, these were 
routine ultrasound guided by an operator who had done at least 50 central lines. The central line was placed one hour after randomization, and notably, the central line catheters were of multiple sizes. That could be a dialysis catheter, they could be a triple lumen catheter, they could be of varied sizes, and there was no restriction on anatomic site. So they had IJs, subclavians, and femorals. In terms of the randomization, it was a one-to-one randomization to either no transfusion or transfusion of one unit of platelets prophylactically. That's perfect, Rob. That's a great summary. So it sounds like these are all patients, I think, that we would see in our emergency departments, or certainly rapidly as they were admitted to the ICU of adults with thrombocytopenia and received all the procedures that we might do during a resuscitation. So to me, when I read through this, I was like, okay, this probably applies to a lot of the patients I might see in the ED. Well, Mike, maybe walk us through what their primary outcomes were, and then maybe we'll walk into the results a little bit after that. Sounds great. Well, their primary outcome, as you heard Rob allude to in the objective, was really catheter-related bleeding. And so more specifically, they were looking as a primary outcome at the occurrence of grade two or higher catheter-related bleeding within 24 hours of placement. Now, what is that grading scale? They outline it very nicely in table one of the article. It's grades zero through four and grade zero, well, no bleeding at all. Grade one, just to put this in perspective, was a little bit of oozing that stopped in less than 20 minutes of compression. Grade two, bleeding that required minor interventions to stop. So it took them a little bit longer up, say, manual compression, maybe more than 20 minutes. Grades three and four is where things start to go awry. Grade three was bleeding that required a radiologic or elective operative intervention or a red cell transfusion, but the patient wasn't hemodynamically unstable due to that bleeding. And finally, the highest severity grade four was really bleeding that was associated with severe hemodynamic instability. So once again, just a reminder, primary outcome was the occurrence of grade two or higher. Secondary outcomes, well, how often or what was the incidence of major bleeding, grade three or grade four events, minor bleeding, a grade one event, so once again, oozing that stopped in less than 20 minutes of compression. What about blood product transfusion within 24 hours of the central line? Any transfusion-related complications, so were there allergic reactions, was there trolley, was there taco, as we've talked about before? And then lastly, some very common secondary outcomes that are looked at in these type of studies. How long did they stay in the ICU? How long did they stay in the hospital? What was the mortality between groups? And then also they looked at the financial costs. Now, in determining sample size, we're not going to get into much of this EBM component. In essence, based upon their calculations, what they needed to demonstrate non-inferiority was roughly 196 patients in each group. So, John, that's really for the primary and secondary outcomes. I'll turn it back over to you. Great, Mike. It's a perfect summary. And I think, practically speaking, this is a reasonable approach to a primary outcome, right? So greater than 20 minutes, you can imagine if there's a small hematoma, you might go back 
over a large venous site and hold pressure for about 15 to 20 minutes. And I always tell the residents, no peaking during that 15 to 20 minutes, keep the pressure on there constant. And then after that clock hits 20 minutes and your fingers have been numb for probably about 10 minutes, take a look again. And if the hematoma continues to expand, well, then you might have an issue and it might need some further interrogation. So I think practically speaking, this is a pretty simple outcome that's worth investigating. Now, Peter, walk us through the results, because I think this is probably one of the more interesting articles that we're going to discuss. And in fact, has raised a lot of discussion locally at our institution as well about whether or not we should change practice. So what did they find? So here are the findings. They looked at 393 patients were included of that final analysis of 411 patients enrolled. That's not a bad number. I think that adds strength to the article. Three patients withdrew consent after a deferred enrollment, and then 20 patients were excluded after protocol violations. Then this is similar between the two groups. When we look at the demographics, they were well-matched between groups. Median age was about 58 years old. 65% of the participants were male. Median platelet count prior to the procedure was 30,000. So these are the people that map the criteria easily. The INR was 1.1, and the hemoglobin was just over 8 grams per deciliter. The location of these patients is somewhat shocking to me, with the majority of these patients being in the ward, on a ward bed, 60%, and then 40% were ICU patients. The catheter types, so 80% were central venous catheters and 20% were dialysis catheters. Now let's talk about the site. Where did they choose to go? 50% of the sites were the IJ, 50%. 40% were subclavian, a little surprising to me, and 10% were ephemeral, right? Again, a surprise to me. It's almost as if an infectious disease specialist was designing this study. Well, Peter, if, if I could interrupt you, I agree with you. I was surprised as well, particularly because of some of the complications that can arise from subclavian line placement, right? Like if you get into bleeding trouble, that's not a great site for you to go for. So I too was pretty surprised by this. Yeah, we're not using direct pressure there. So there was a significant difference in the primary outcome, which was grade two to four bleeding. The transfusion group nine events out of 188 patients studied, or 4.8%. If you didn't receive the transfusion of platelets before, there were 22 events in 185 patients, or 11.9%. So significant difference. The transfusion group had a 7.1% lower absolute risk reduction, 90% confidence interval of 1.3 to 17.8. It really equates to a 2.45 relative risk reduction in bleeding events for the transfusion group. Their 90% confidence interval was 1.27 to 4.7. Now, when we look at the secondary outcomes and subgroup analysis, the risk of grade three or four bleeding complications was lower in the transfusion group, 2.1% versus 4.9%. There were no grade four bleeding complications in either group. 
surprising to me. The central line location appears that the subclavian vein site had the most bleeding events. And this is two out of 71 versus 13 out of 70. All other sites were similar. The highest incidence of bleeding were in ward patients with platelet counts of 10 to 20,000. Not surprising there. And then transfusion complications there were three allergic reactions and one acute lung injury event recorded. I'd be interested to see what you guys think about that. Yeah, me too. We'll start with Mike in a second, but you know, I think the thing that stands out here is there clearly was an anatomic site that was driving the outcome difference here. And specifically in this patient population, I think the pretest probability of having that complication was probably a little bit higher. And then Certainly, I do think, though, that the fact that they did find a significant difference, though, is worth thinking about whether or not it might change your practice. So, Mike, what are your thoughts on these outcomes here? Anything stand out to you? You guys are hitting the big points here. And I I think if we drop down to just what the author concludes, or if you look at the conclusion on the paper, that really we should be considering prophylactic platelet transfusions before CVC placement in these patients that have that degree of thrombocytopenia, you could get that from reading the abstract. But I actually think they do a great job to me towards the end in their discussion, suggesting that rather than just that global approach, still think about it at an individual patient level. And I think that's really a smart way to think about it. To the end that they state, well, because they had so many patients on the hematology ward, and it seemed to be complications with tunneled catheters per se, a little bit more so than CVCs, thinking about that individual patient approach of if you've got somebody on the ward and their thrombocytopenia in a cancer center, hematology ward, their mechanism of thrombocytopenia may be different than what we see in critical illness in the ICU. These folks may be a little higher risk, and depending on the catheter size and location, it may be beneficial that they receive prophylactic platelet transfusion versus those in the ICU that perhaps you could watch with a little bit more tighter monitoring and may not need to reflexively give all patients with platelets less than 50,000 a reflexive transfusion and then potentially incur the risk of a blood product transfusion. That's a really insightful kind of comments there. And I agree. I think the authors did an excellent job really teasing out the nuances of the patient populations and the complications that they saw. Rob, what are your take-homes or what are your big takeaways from these results? Does anything stand out to you? Yeah, I like their forest plot, which in this case, in which they do a stratification according to different characteristics And it really allows you to see where the big differences are. Yet on the forest plot, really every point estimate, every one of the characteristics was leaning towards transfusion. And so my take on it is that I'm going to continue transfusing platelets for less than 50. I suppose I might If they're in the 40 range, 40 to 50 range, maybe I won't, but certainly below 40, I'm going to continue to transfuse platelets. I think that the risks of platelet transfusion are so extraordinarily low reactions 
And in my view, you can't really justify having a bleeding complication by withholding them. That's my view. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, I think that there's definitely going to be some individualized interpretation based on where you're practicing, right? I feel like if this is a procedure where the patient's going to be admitted to the floor where they might have Q4 hour nursing checks or something like that, that may not be the smartest thing to go rogue and do this invasive procedure and then ship them off where they might not get seen for a while because a lot of things can happen in those four hours. But admitted to the ICU with an ultrasound and in a compressible site, you might feel a little bit more comfortable about doing an urgent procedure in a more closely monitored setting. So I agree. I think that's really, really insightful. And it's interesting. You came in with a little bit of bias, Rob, because you said before even reading this article, you had that 50K threshold. So this validated kind of where you're coming from, which was kind of cool to see. But certainly, I think there's a lot of us who maybe don't have that specific threshold in mind. So definitely adds a little bit of evidence to our practice for sure. Yeah. One thing to be clear is that if somebody needs an emergent catheter, I'm not going to wait for a platelet transfusion. If they need one in the next five minutes, I'm not going to wait. But if there is time to prepare, to clarify, if there is time to prepare, I'm going to going to transfuse. Excellent point, Rob. Mike, final thoughts? I think we got to wrap to Peter for final thoughts. Ah. So my thoughts on this echoes what you guys have said. I think we have to look at the patients individually. But again, what this study speaks to me about is if you're on the ward and you have low platelets and you're getting central access of some sort, you might be the person who's the prime candidate to either be moved to the unit or make sure that we get platelets on board beforehand, that these are the high-risk patients. And this study echoes that. And I think for me, that's my kind of game changer to make sure that we're shepherding those patients and looking out for those patients. All right. Well, I think that's going to bring us to a close. John, thanks so much for taking us through this discussion. Really, really outstanding job. Really love the discussion on an important, yet again, 2023 article that pertains to an important aspect in the management and care of our critically ill patients. So my thanks, gentlemen. My thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget that you do have that CME opportunity through the website if you'd like to earn CME for listening to the podcast. Please email us any questions you have on this article or any recent podcast that we've put out. And as always, we will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.